The hosts feel it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to. Well, we've warned you. Hello and welcome once again to the Frankencast. I'm the mad scientist Anthony Bowman. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm joined as always by... You know that creepy brother who always ruins your stuff? Yeah, that's me, Eric Velasquez. My pronouns are also he, him. Uh, Ezra. (laughs) Yeah, so this week we're joined by a very special guest. We're really excited. Um, We've got Addy Tsai here, uh, author of Unwieldy Creatures. Welcome, Addy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. Glad to have you here. Yeah, we're really excited. So I I just kind of stumbled across your book on Twitter, uh, and I was like, this book... Like, we have been talking over the course of the show several times that, like, Frankenstein needs, like, a trans sort of retelling. There's just so much there. There's there's so many ways that you can queer the story and it's just not really been done. There's a lot of people that read queer subtext into versions. I mean, you know, James Whale specifically and stuff, but like there's not just been something overtly like this. And when I found it, I was like, this is what we've been asking for. Uh, So I was just very, very excited to to find this. And it just released Um, in what? Was it June? August. So yeah, so it's still a baby. Yep. Yeah. So hey, there you go. So, so one of the first things we always ask everybody who uh, who we talk to is, why Frankenstein? What is it about this story that that uh, speaks to you? So, um, one of the things I realized recently, actually, is that I read Frankenstein when I was nineteen, so the same age that Mary Shelley was when she wrote it. So, I really, I've been really thinking about that recently. But um, yeah, I. I read it in a romantics lit course in college and was immediately transfixed by it. And I personally feel that I was transfixed by it in a slightly different way than um, many readers are. It wasn't really the horror aspect of it. Um, I grew up in the 90s, so as a biracial kid, but also as an identical twin, I really I really appreciated the, the way that Shelley has um, Frankenstein and the monster sort of mirror each other, this like really interesting duality that happens. Even the way that they look at nature is sort of, they, they speak about their plights in very similar ways. Right. And um, was also dealing with maternal abandonment. So that was something that uh, really spoke to me in terms of how the creature sort of emphasizes, you know, his, um, his abandonment from his creator. And I don't know, I just sort of, I've always been obsessed with it. Um, And uh, it re-entered my life um, 
I like to tell people I, that I read it as a self-help book after I had a breakup with a narcissistic artist. And I was like, and actually, that, <laughs> um, and that relationship was like, we were supposed to work on a Frankenstein collaboration together okay. and it like went, you know, just went terribly wrong. And I was like, what, why am I drawn to these like narcissistic people? So then I started to like obsessively read Frankenstein and try to, like understand narcissism, like from this psychoanalytic place. And, um, and then I collaborated with a dance theater company on a dance theater adaptation of Frankenstein. Mm. Um, gosh, it was over a decade now, it's February, 2011. We did it for Valentine's weekend. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so it's just, it's just always been with me and, um, in 2019, I started writing Unwieldy Creatures because I was thinking about the rise and access of in vitro, mm -hmm. um, mm. the different ways that people were accessing it. And even though it's incredibly expensive now, we are just seeing more and more people for all different reasons, um, you know, go, go to IVF. And, you know, I just thought this is a very interesting technological landscape to resituate um, Frankenstein. So that was one thing I was thinking about. And then the other thing that was happening, it's really the timing of when I started this book and when it was published is very sort of eerie because Georgia was dealing with um, reproductive rights struggles when I started mm -hmm. writing it. And that's where a lot of what takes place in this book comes from. And then it was published literally days from Roe versus Wade being overturned. So, um, so that was another tension that I was thinking about. Not only, mm -hmm. you know, the technology of reproduction is getting to be very interesting now um, oh, in our sure. time, while we're seeing this real tension around giving rights to just all people who, um, who can get pregnant and carry children. So, and IVF is part of that, right? So, yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely points for uh, bringing uh, Frankenstein to the 21st century, because that was <laughs> kind of the way I was like, if you're going to do it, that's kind of the way you got to do it, as opposed to just chemicals and yada, 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 it's alive. Because of course, it's alive. <laughs> well, what's really funny about the the science in the book is that I um, made it up and then realized it actually existed. <laughs> so no. I was like, oh, let's see if this... Let's just put this in here. And then I thought, you know, I should probably look this up just to be sure. And it's a real thing. It's yeah. been done, you know, with lab mice. They're afraid to bring it to humans because it could cause <laughs> all sorts of um, all sorts of issues. So that was sort of that was a funny moment for me. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting because I was like, oh, the, you know, Addie has to be well versed in STEM because <laughs> this this sounds right. You know, this. <laughs> the, the math checks out. So that was really yeah. cool. Hey, yeah. serendipity, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was really. Fun. I was just like, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to have a book with a um, a non cis male Frankenstein who figures out a way to not have to rely on sperm? And I thought, you know, I should make sure so like scientists don't yell at me if like it's just very clearly yeah. not researched. And I'm like, oh, there you go. It already exists like, and farther than I imagined, which is that you can create, um, you know, an embryo just using stem cells, which would mean you could like, you know, bump into 
any celebrity or right. <laughs> ex or crush or upset somebody you're obsessed with take a lock of their hair oh, and no. make a child I mean, you're you're actually you're 100 right the ethics behind this are sketchy as hell but yes that could probably happen one day yeah but also going back to the biracial aspect what did i do to hurt you i don't think we've met before but <laughs> but that hits as a as a latino white male you know that's most of the stuff that you talk about where there's that conflict of you know two cultures it's like mm, felt that one <laughs> Yeah, well, and, you know, and as I said, I grew up in the 90s and I mean, it's still stigmatized, but very, very stigmatized then. And so I just um, I think there's like two things about Frankenstein, you know, obviously that the creature is other really uh, resonated with with me. But also that alienation you feel from your home language where he's having to kind of like scrap together um how to become literate because nobody will teach him. And so I also really, yeah, like that was something that I also really, really related with. And I, I don't know. I just think that there was an opportunity for Frankenstein to, um, you know, not only be queered and racialized, but also where, where whiteness is sort of this, um, the violent power it actually is in real life rather than this kind of like assumed invisibility that, that has to happen in the 1800s, yeah. you know? So yeah, I th I think that that's that's one of the things that really impressed me um, about this is that I think in a lot of cases, um, which there's nothing wrong with this, but I feel like a lot of people, if they had like they wanted to retell Frankenstein, they might say like, I'm going to look at it from a queer angle and that's going to be my story, or I'm going to look at it from a this angle and that's going to be my story. But you like, if you if you actually go back and read Mary Shelley's text. You know, she's throwing in little references to like socioeconomic stuff. There's there's all kinds of just little things tossed in there, and like I think that you managed to do that again. Like there's uh, there's so many different layers to what you're you're you know I mean you know there's there's the queer angle, there's the the racial element, there's like stuff about consent. You know, especially when you've got like uh, Z and Hannah, and like Hannah realizing that you know yeah. they're pregnant. With you know not who they thought not conform the right. the, the baby or their the, exactly. the parents are and so, you know um, so like I don't know it just the amount of stuff that you were able to put in this is really really impressive to me yeah I mean honestly yeah like I'm not trying to blow your head up or you know blow smoke up your backside or anything like that <laughs> but I honestly have to say that I think if if Mary Shelley had just written Frankenstein, it would be pretty darn close to this. If, if not this book. Like today, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like if she wrote it today, I, yeah. I think it would be pretty, pretty close because I mean, she, she talks about the colonization and how that's wrong. Now don't get me wrong. There's other stuff that, you know, problematic and all that, but well, that, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just really floored and touched by that. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm telling you uh, exactly how I feel about it. Like, yeah. 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 It's, um, yeah. I, I don't want this to like devolve into us just being yeah. like the Chris Farley right. interview and being like, that was awesome. But it yeah. really, like, I, I, I really mean, really I would love it. it. I, 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 love, <laughs> I love that sketch. <laughs> yeah. That's, but there needs to be way more like hitting of your head and you know pulling the beards. <laughs> um, 
one other thing that I like, I'm not sure. I feel like this is this is pretty intentional, on your, but there's like, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting the way that you retell the story, but also the story exists in it. You know, it's it's a sort of meta narrative where like a lot of times it would just be like we're gonna ignore that it exists and just do this modern retelling, but like you have these characters who quote the original text to each other and are, are fascinated by it, uh, but then their their lives still manage to like parallel it um, in in. You like it's the ways that it parallels keeps doubling and tripling on top of itself. Where like you know you have like Lee who starts out kind of as like a creature type character, where like you're dealing with like their relationship to their father and everything, but then they become a creator as they're a sculptor, and then they become like the Captain Walton who's listening to the narrative from Z. Right, and 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 every character is like that. Yeah, and as Z even mentions, it's like I see it in your eye. You you're really into this story, so let's go. <laughs> and I feel like every character is like that. Like they each character is like an analog for multiple characters through through Mary Shelley's story at different points in their lives, uh, which is just super cool. You know, I I've been saying lately that I wrote I you know I hope that it stands on its own, and I hope people who haven't read Frankenstein you know still feel connected to it i hope that i bring people to frankenstein when they read the book if they haven't read it um but i i do like to say that i wrote this for the frankenstands i wrote this <laughs> <laughs> i wrote this for the you know the people who deeply know mary shelley's novel not just the you know frankenstein the creation from the adaptations but know all of the different plot points i i would say that there's not um obviously there's not a parallel for every single thing that happens in Shelley's original, but I get as close as I think as you can without, you know, sort of obsessing over that. And, you know, that was really important to me. I mean, I love the meta shit, you know, I mm-hmm. wanted, I, I, I wanted to put the layer of um, Frankenstein as a text and as an inspiration, you know, in, into the world of the story. The other thing too, is that um, the way that I wrote it, you know, I've read this book so many times, but when I was writing it, I went chapter by chapter. So I would read a chapter, write a chapter. And the reason that the time and the setting aren't very specific is because I did want to create a diction that meshed like this kind of contemporary diction with um, an homage to Mary Shelley's diction. And I felt, felt like if I made it, if I made it to, especially the time period too specific, it would sort of come off a little bit stilted. So I I wanted Mm -hmm. it to sort of feel like it was from the past and from the future, you know, sort of at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely felt that. Because it was like, kind of like, um, maybe Z's experience could have happened in like the 70s or even earlier, whereas Plum or Lee is kind of happening, obviously more modern day. Oh, there was one thing I was going to say about um, Plum is that, it always annoyed me that Captain Walton just sort of disappears yeah. by the end, you know? Mm-hmm. So I will say that threading Plum as the Captain Walton figure who is actually part of the story and like through all the way to the end was like a very intentional sort of, not a correction, but you know, just something I would have <laughs> liked to see in the original book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like the ending of this is definitely where you made the biggest changes and and like you said, like I feel like you did this for the fans. Like you get you get 
some of the happy ending moments that you always want to see and never get right. in most adaptations of the story. You know, and I just felt like for a queer story, I just didn't want to end with this kind of like queer tragedy, queer trauma. Um, I wanted to think about a world in which, um, I don't want to give too much away, but in which people are, no matter who they are, are loved and accepted. Um, and maybe sort of force Frankenstein to <laughs> face some sort of consequence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, other than just dying. <laughs> yeah, but then, he, but then he never has to live with anything, exactly. right? And yep. that's, yeah. what, that's what we see happen over and over again, especially um, I think a lot about, you know, the shooting sprees that we see happen all over the country. Yeah. Typically, they, you know, whether by suicide or by police force, they they die before any, you know, they never have to live with what they've done. So, um, yeah, so that was definitely something I was sort of thinking about, like, how how can Frankenstein sort of have to live with <laughs> with his choices? Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciated, like, having multiple queer characters in this, you were able to have Z be, like, sort of a villainous character and it not be like oh of course the queer character is the bad guy right. i mean it almost felt i don't know if this is me reading into it um but like it, it almost felt like z was sort of infected by like their father's patriarchal stuff like toxic masculinity like through their dealings with ezra uh, you know, like there, I think there's there's like that moment where you know at first like Z is surprised that Hannah wants to continue and have a career of their own, uh, and then you know kind of continues wow. that with with Plum, where like there you know it's it almost feels like because Z was like sort of reckoning with like masculine um, ideas. ideas that that like it felt like that was something that they needed to take on like toxic masculinity rather than just their own version of masculinity. Am, am I? off base there no no no. yeah um i felt like it would be too easy and a little bit problematic to just have um a female frankenstein just be a narcissist i felt <laughs> like there had to be something underneath it especially when you think about the ways that women in literature have been villainized and um, made hysteric and that sort of thing so so in this book i really wanted to show like the the harm and sort of product of toxic masculinity on the people that are in relationship to it. And, you know, and that's not just the case for Z, but also the case for Ezra. And, um, and also that when you turn Elizabeth, you know, when you turn Elizabeth Victor into, um, when you change the genders of the, that power dynamic, that it's, it gets way more complicated. And you have Victor's, able to like run from this right. really <laughs> I mean yeah, up situation <laughs> like I'm just really shocked that almost no adaptations have dealt with this weird incestuous um forced marriage plot you know <laughs> and um but you know I think that Victor does does get to run away in a way that that if the genders are are changed or different, right. um, it's just not quite the same. And so, yeah, so there, so consent sort of comes up again in in that. And also, just what happens when you, you know, Ezra is raised into this kind of toxic masculinity. What happens when his entitlement is sort of taken away from him? Then I'm not going to give it away, mm -hmm. but <laughs> not, some some trouble ensues. <laughs> not gonna lie. After after certain events in the story, I was like hoping that Ezra just went back to the way things were before 
I know. Dad, but no. Okay. No. <laughs> oh, well, that's fine. You know, obviously there wouldn't be a story. If <laughs> and, you know, like, I, again, like, I feel like, you know, obviously Ezra is like the Elizabeth analog, but then the way that Ezra is sort of turned by their father well, becomes sort of a monster, yeah. uh, you know, uh, and the consent thing, like the that moment with like the proposal, <laughs> that it's, uh, like it plays like a like attempted like rape scene almost. Like it, it that that scene is very very intense. Yeah. Yep, Ezra is. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was definitely he was definitely like one of the hardest moves to get right. Well, and I also just wanted to show like what happens when when boys are groomed into toxic masculinity. I mean, obviously boys do not start off that way. They are conditioned into that. And um, yeah, I was a, I, I did have readers who were like, no, when once Ezra <laughs> turns, because yeah. Ezra is quite um, sweet and delicate in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Womp, womp. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, like just said, wouldn't be a story otherwise. Yeah. So. So just a quick question, and you could, you could say, no, nah, I'm not going to deal with that. But uh, how much of this, like, how much is actually autobiographical? Like, how, did you put any of you, you into this, or is it just kind of things you've seen and encountered? So, um, you know, I typically write really autobiographical work, actually, but this is probably the first... I would say almost solely fictional work that I've ever made. Um, I mean, I mean, definitely I'm the closest to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of you know, if there's anyone I identify with, definitely Plum is probably the closest to um, you know. I'm not taking scenes from my life, but my parental background is very similar to Plum's parental background, and sort of the way that she she navigates some of the things she's wrestling with are very similar to me, but. Yeah, but nothing in it is actually like from my personal life whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, you're. I'd say you're probably better off for that no in doubt. most cases. <laughs> it's well written, though. I mean, honestly. Yeah, it so it, it feels very real in yeah. a lot of places. So. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think earlier you mentioned um, you were talking about like the uh, connections to nature, and there's definitely a lot of that in here as well. I mean, beyond you know characters being named Plum and and Ash and Pine and everything, there's a lot of nature stuff there. But one one little moment that I thought was really cool and um, kind of I, I think sort of fits in with that is like the moment when in in Mary Shelley's work when when Victor sort of like has the idea of like the, the galvanism thing, like he sees lightning strike a tree and destroy it and there's the line about you know never i've never seen anything so utterly destroyed and then in your book it's lightning striking sand and creating glass so it's like instead of destruction it's creation which makes so much more sense in the the context of like using this power as a as a creative force i love that actually i hadn't actually thought about it that way um I knew a little bit about this process that happens between lightning and sand, but I did a lot more research on it. And I can't remember when I actually found, well, I, you know, I knew they were in West Texas and I just started doing some like sort of internet journeys and, you know, happened to f upon this park in which this actually happens, this Monaghan Sand Hill State Park that's in West Texas. And, but I, I did really want to have that that electricity metaphor is so important in the book and 
And, you know, it's also so for, for those who obsessively, you know, research Mary Shelley, it's very important for the kinds of experiments that were happening at the time that she decided to, or that she dreamed up, you know, this story. Mm-hmm. So, but um, I get a lot of compliments on that scene and I'm really excited that people sort of see the, that they see the connection I was trying to make for, um, for Z, you know, in parallel with Frankenstein's epiphany. So yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let, let's go back to a little bit, you know, an easier topic, right? <laughs> You know, I'm just going to stop putting my foot in my mouth and just ask the question. So, obviously, you're a writer. Do you like the movies, the Frankenstein movies? Um, Does that have any place in your heart? Um, so, I keep hearing that I need to watch Penny Dreadful. I did not mm-hmm. fi- catch it on Netflix, and now it's, like, impossible to find. But I'm going to try to watch that one. Um, I really love Gods and Monsters. So, I, I tend to like this side Side, side adaptations. Um, mm. I do have a soft, even though Branagh is sort of exhausting, I do have a soft spot for <laughs> Branagh's adaptation because I think De Niro does a really beautiful, liquidy, embodied um, representation of the monster. I also really like the the National Theater, the one with Benedict Cumberbatch, where they, have y'all seen that, mm. where they switched roles? Yeah. Um, yes. I, and, and just like the... Um, the production value, like the amount of funding they had for those productions, you know, where the body was like lifted up into the air and they had all this like really amazing suspension work. Uh, I think, I mean, the original is fine. I have no interest in any of the bride stuff. It's not part of the story. Um, And now everyone sort of thinks it is and it sort of gets on my nerves. (laughs) It's like Igor, you know, that's, that came in the movies, what, uh, son, or yeah, son of Frankenstein, and he's not even mm. a lab assistant. He's literally a guy who uh, pretty much blackmails uh, the <laughs> third Frankenstein into bringing the monster back. You know, I mean, I do love Young Frankenstein because I think I think it's it, so. That's actually my favorite adaptation. Okay. I think it is brilliant <laughs> in the way that it actually does take from the original text, mm-hmm. even though it's a parody. And I just think what it. Um, you know what it does with like the old blind man like it's just it's just such a brilliant comic work so that's probably um my favorite and then you know edward scissorhands even though we can't mm-hmm. like johnny depp anymore but i still yeah. i still love, <laughs> love that film yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. or and also that moment in nightmare before christmas with the, the doctor and the right yes I mean that is. Yeah, the we're actually planning on doing both of those, Edward Scissorhands and and uh, Nightmare Before Christmas here pretty soon. So I'm a big and big nightmare freak, so I will definitely have to check that one out. Yeah, absolutely. What about y'all? What what is your what are your favorite adaptations? I agree with you that the the Branna one is really interesting. Um, the moments between the creature and Victor are like the pathos in those hits really close to home. There's also one from the 70s that was produced by Dan Curtis, the guy who yeah. um, did the Dark Shadows. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, soap opera or whatever. And it's another one that like the relationship between the creature and Victor is... It's not this thing where Victor instantly just hates the creature. Like, Victor tries, and then it just, things keep mm. falling apart. And so there's, like, this sort of, like, fate that kind of comes into it that's that's really, like... Yeah, they make it you more feel tragedy. Like, yeah, it, there's there's mm. more tragedy there. It's, so it's a different interpretation. 
Right. Um, there's also an anime that we watched pretty recently that is really, really good. Yeah. It, oh, is, uh, that, is that the one from um, Junji Ito? No, but we're okay. getting there. No. I have the this book. Is, I, I don't know if it was turned into an anime or not, but... Um, no. This one. I don't think it has been, but so this one's from what, the 80s, mm-hmm. and it's called... Uh, it's like Kyofu Densetsu Kaiki Frankenstein. Yeah. It's actually like based on a Marvel comic book that then was created, but like uh, it was a TV movie, but you can find it on YouTube. Um, so it's it's pretty easy to track down. And it has a lot more with like um, the the blind man and mm. um, it, there's, there's the family relationships are kind of, it's kind of similar to what you've done where they just kind of scramble things around to, to tell a different story. Um, I, I would definitely, re- I think you would probably really enjoy that. Right. Um, now, yeah. So now it's one with another, uh, like it has a queer subtext, but it's Frankenstein, the true story. That one, I, I, I ended up liking it just because of, um, what's his name? Um, Dr. Uh, Palidori. Palidori. Yes, exactly. Oh, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Palidori is like a villain within the story. Right. Um, but like the creature and Victor basically are gay lovers for a good chunk of the movie. Oh, like wow. it's, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it's not it's overt, but it's pretty close to overt. That's really interesting. Yeah. I'm going to have to look at that. I remember seeing this really terrible, really old B movie that actually introduced Mary Shelley as Mrs. Percy Shelley. I was just, yeah. no, just, no. yeah, <laughs> that's, like she has way more talent than he he does. I, I mean, clearly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look at like cultural impact, like there's no question. Yeah. Like Mary Shelley, like legitimately invented an entire genre of fiction. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Percy had his little poems or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> Percy and Byron did their their cute little poems, but they were outshone by. It's, it is funny though that they were both outshone by a 19 year old girl and a doctor like even the vampires has a little bit more cultural impact it's funny because like the, when you said little poems it actually reminded me of the way that um frida used to talk about diego <laughs> oh those were some cute little paintings you know <laughs> <laughs> Like, especially to to think about, like, the time period when she made this and the fact that the first publication didn't even have her name on it and everything, like, the, uh, yeah. yeah, there's just the, the cultural impact that, that she's had. Uh, and it's, you know, not only creating a genre, but, like, creating this story that has, has you know, it inspired you. It's inspired so many creators to, uh, that's one of the things that I really like about Frankenstein as opposed to, to other horror stories uh, of the time is that, like, there's enough gaps in the story that you can keep retelling it in new ways. There's, there's, uh, you know, whether you want to tell a queer story or you want to, you know, make it more horror or you want to make it more about science or whatever, like there's so many different interpretations and, you know, I mean, that's why we're able to do what we're doing. Um, but I, I think that that's pretty rare for, for a work to, have that kind of life yeah especially 200 years later especially for like um a horror or gothic genre it is genre fluid enough that if you're not actually into horror you're not actually into the gothic 
um, I think that you can still connect to it on these universal themes. Whereas, you know, Dracula, I mean, you really have to be a vampire person to be into Dracula. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. um, so I think it brings a lot of different kinds of, um, you know, readers and consumers of art. Um, I mean, I certainly was not, well, I'm going to say this and then I was going to say, I wasn't really a horror person, even though I was obsessed with the vampire chronicles when I was a teenager, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I've, <laughs> actually like my first fiction, we didn't call it fan fiction then, but they mm. were just really bad, like twin vampire fanfic of Anne Rice's The Vampire Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> That was how I got my start. That's okay. how this book became. <laughs> you gotta start Everybody's somewhere. Gotta start somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And now look, there's a queer interview of the vampire on TV. There you go. Right? Yeah. That's pretty. Have y'all have y'all watched that yet? Are y'all into that? Uh, not yet. I, I haven't, but I've been hearing good things. It's really, I'm really impressed with it. And what's really interesting is because they've made um, Louis Black in the care in the story, but they really interweave the racial tensions throughout. The, so they, so it's not this kind of idea of blind casting. It's like they really make it part of the this like new version. So it's it's I, I'm really interested in it. And they've already, um, I see that they already have like a second a second season is going go. to come. So we'll see oh, like, wow. where it goes. Yeah. Right. All right. That's really cool. I'll probably check that out right after then. <laughs> I'm, I'm, basically, I'm the kind of person that I'm like, I don't really want to invest time unless somebody actually tells me it's pretty good. So yeah, no, same. Right. Fair enough. Speaking of, you know, you just said um, making the character black. And there, there's like a few little, I mean, I guess plum again being like a, a color, but there's like, the hospital worker's name is black and you have like the midwife uh, it's silver but i you know saw that as like silver like is there it was there like a color theme that you were trying to kind of thread through it as well you mean that in terms of race or in terms of actual color i think i, I mean well I, I mean i guess more in terms of color you know obviously like purple is not a, a not a race but like um it did it did feel like oh i know that was completely accidental actually um but i that's really interesting yeah um i have no idea where silver came from but i definitely wasn't thinking of the color so okay. <laughs> but it's interesting to think about yeah Hmm, okay. Yeah. So what I was going to ask is, so I noticed also we we got a little bit of a Mandarin lesson in the if, mm -hmm. if you read the book. So was it just, hey, I want to share, you know, some of my background with other people? Um, I mean, you know, I wanted I wanted the um, book to be Asian. I wanted the book to include, um, you know, people from different Asian cultural backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me. I do like to often weave in man. I'm, I'm not fluent in Mandarin at all. Um, a lot of these words I have to sort of like look up or, and I had, um, an editor, a pinyin editor that kind of helped me because, um, Same with me with the, well, especially with the, um, the dumpling restaurant, I can't remember what I called it before, but my, um, pinyin editor was like, this makes no sense as a restaurant, like, yeah. <laughs> as a name of a restaurant. And like, we went back and forth about what we could call it instead. Um, but, you know, I, I did want it to just have like all these layers of like language. And um, I, I think, you know, for me as a, as a person of color, I, I, I'm really writing into the landscape that I want to see in literature that isn't there. And I think one of those things is just, um, 
you know, sort of bringing out this linguistic complexity. The reason that the um, there's so much pinyin in it is that, uh, you know, plum is Chinese American, Taiwanese American. And so I feel like that would really be the the way that she would relate to language. It's a very, okay. you know, sort of Chinese American um, idea. So, yeah, I just wanted to show all these like different layers of like how they are, they aren't, um, you know, integrated into the culture. So, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, re- I liked, I felt like that was sort of like, you know, being biracial is sort of like Frankensigning two races together or two cultures together. And the, the text is kind of the same thing where you're stitching together these two languages to tell the story. Uh, and then you have like, you know, Z who grows up not being allowed to learn, um, you know, like living in a home with, with the grandmother who speaks this language and being kind of kept away from that. Right. Doesn't uh, speak English very, very well. Yeah. Which I, you know, and I think there's a, a lot of those experiences that just have not made it into contemporary fiction and, um, where I think we have a lot of immigrant literature where those, you know, the people that are writing through that are very fluent, do contain their birth language, but there's a number of us that are really alienated from that landscape. And so I I wanted to sort of present different ways of looking at that. And, you know, and then there's a generational tension when these parents get married and Mm -hmm the grandmother and the mother right. have this <laughs> interaction. Um, and, and I think that's, that's something that, you know, we experience if we're children of immigrants, this idea that we're supposed to, um, you know, marry into whiteness, marry into prosperity, um, yeah. sort of give up our relationship to our, our cultural background in order to, to succeed. And, and those are very real things. And I wanted to sort of represent, so, you know, so the book is also dealing with a lot of different generational tensions as well, I think. And there's also the pressure to maintain the appearance of it's basically what someone expects you to, this is how you're supposed to act because you come from this culture. And then you come across and you're, you basically try to interact with that other culture and they're like, oh no, you're more, you're more white or you're, you know, you also have that tension as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think um, like our parents, they thought that 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 was the thing that you're supposed to do. You're supposed Mm -hmm. to help them adapt and assimilate, but then you lose intimacy with them, you know, so it becomes Mm -hmm. very complicated. And, and I think once you lose that, you can't really, you can't really return to it. And so that those are some of the things that I wanted to show also. Um, Yeah. yeah. I felt like that part um, was sort of the, uh, the analog for like the Safi story, but it was kind of like the reverse, which feels more modern. Cause it was like Safi's father didn't want her to marry into whiteness. Right. Like he wanted her to stay, you know, with the Muslim culture and everything. Um, and, and like, it seemed like that part because Safi's story feels like the most, uh, like siloed part of, of the Frankenstein novel. Like it, it, it's it could almost be cut out and you wouldn't miss it, but yeah. it's really important at the same time. And, and, um, Z's sort of like family backstory is the same way where it's like, it may not forward the story plot. Like it's not hammering the plot forward, but it's also very, very important at the same time. I really love that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I wasn't doing it in that way intentionally, but, but also, you know, I'm just, I was just like, 
Frankenstein's just coming out of my pores. It's probably going all over. The, <laughs> it's just going all over the place. You sleeping, dreaming Frankenstein, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I love that part of the story too. And I think, um, you know, one one of the things I wanted to do in the in in a retelling is just put way more of the original Frankenstein. There's just so much that's happening in that in in that original text that very few people actually use and i do Mm -hmm. think there's just so much material there that it's just really exciting to kind of play with and explore in different ways um yeah yeah it's definitely one of the most frustrating parts about all of the movies is even the ones that are like this is the the closest adaptation yet and it's still like i mean especially that story is i it's never been covered in any adaptation i've seen like um, if you get get the Safi character at all, she just kind of shows up, gets scared away with the rest of the family, like one scene later, and that's it for her. Like you don't get the um, whole like, vignette of her father getting uh, basically arrested just for having money and being not a Frenchman, then having to basically break him out of prison just as water. <laughs> that's uh, it's his own little yeah. It, it's it's like you know like he said it's it's a really rich part of the story that just because I think because it doesn't you know, follow the, the, you know, train track of the plot that everybody wants to just stay on. Like it just gets overlooked over and over again. So yeah, I thought it was really exciting that you kind of nodded to it in a way. Man, somebody should write a whole adaptation just about her. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. It'd be really interesting. Um... And then just all of a sudden they, I don't know if you would call it really a monster nowadays, but just a, a massive person just busts in through the door <laughs> and just ends, ends the movie there, or the story there. Like, or is the Beauty and the Beast? I mean, uh... <laughs> and they fall in love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah. There's even, there's a really great book um, called The Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein that is... It's it's more it follows Elizabeth's side of the story and kind of purports to be about like you know the women of the novel, but still Safi's not in it really at all. I don't think she's in it even yeah a little bit. But I mean it, it is still really a great story. It's just you know that, that again that part of the story gets overlooked. I was curious about that book. I haven't read it, but somebody just recommended that i read it a few days ago um did you like it yeah yeah i'd say it's definitely worth checking out it's um it's kind of cool because you know it, it follows the plot of the of the original but like it diverts in a few places and it's kind of like you know is victor an unreliable narrator is elizabeth maybe they both are so they might both be kind of tweaking the truth to make themselves look better in their version of the story yeah. um but yeah it, it goes into a lot of stuff about her needing uh you know like to to be able to thrive you know she needs victor because of the societal expectations like uh you know she doesn't have an opportunity to better herself without you know victor's family name and money and everything so um it, it like she's her love for victor is not romantic you know it's more like by necessity which feels like maybe Mary had that in there, but maybe not as overt because of when she was writing it. Yeah, the way that Elizabeth is written about is like, well, through Victor's point of view, right? Mm-hmm. She was a lamp. She was right, she was idealized, and on a pedestal. Um, but yeah, she's kind of like the an early manic pixie dream girl, basically. Um, also, justice for Justine, right? Right. 
Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Poor Justine. Also, no one really talks about Ernest very much. Ernest Frankenstein. <laughs> I'm I'm a little sad about that. I feel like that brother has been on the street a little bit. <laughs> you never see him. Where does he ever pop up? Anywhere. Nowhere. Oh my god. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely like I mean now we're just we just Ah. Like, we just came up with a whole series, right. you know? We just yeah. write these books forever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it is, like, Justine... And I, you know, I liked that, you, again, you you know, you swapped genders there and kind of made Justine into... Or so, like, there was Justin, the child, and then, like, the, you know, Justin's mother kind of is more of the Justine character. Um, and I, I, do, I feel like Justine also, in a lot of adaptations... If she's there at all, she's not really given any, yeah. you know, any screen time, and it's often just written out altogether as well. I think that's yeah, and super problematic to omit her, um, especially because she she also furthers the development of Elizabeth. We see a relationship that Elizabeth right. has outside of her, basically just like trying to get Victor and Victor running away from her. You know, right. I think I like you just mentioned. I think it's very important because it shows how much that Elizabeth is willing to stand up for something and how cowardly Victor ultimately is. Because usually when that happens, he's like, I'm just going to be quiet. I know what's, what's happening. And I mean, I could say it, but they're going to think I'm crazy. So yeah, I'll be, I'll be quiet. And just whine in, we yeah. just have to witness his interior whine for like a <laughs> hundred yeah, pages. That's true as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, every time I've taught it, I've, I always tell the students, I'm like, he's just going to get on your every last nerve. Just it, It's just going to happen. <laughs> and he's going to randomly pass out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, and speaking then, you of know, that, sorry, sorry that I'm still this, Anthony. No, no, go for but it. But it felt like, to a degree, when Z uh, and Plum had their interaction kind of at the beginning of the book, and that's where they go back to, the, I believe, the house, um, was that a nod to that kind of like when when Victor has his his spells or whatever? You oh want yes, to absolutely. Yes, okay. it was. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> his hysteria. Yeah. yeah, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Yeah, Victor fainting is definitely like an ongoing joke. In in <laughs> as we watch all these movies, that just over and over. Yeah, again. we we literally say that's how you know they're a Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> Get the smelling salts. Yep. <laughs> uh, and and as far as like Victor sort of like being cowardly and stuff with Justine, there's also like it's wild to me. I, I mean, I think it's you know it's intentional on on Mary's part, but like the fact that this guy is supposedly so brilliant that he creates a life, but he so fails to read into things that like he genuinely thinks that the creature's threat is to him. Like the I'll be with you on your wedding night. It is mind blowing how long that goes on, and that he's like, n never crosses his mind that uh, I don't know if it never crosses his mind or just that he's so self involved that like of course he he's the person who's going to be hurt, right. and it never even thinks about that like Elizabeth matters. You know, I I've, I've thought a lot about that moment, and I feel like there's a couple of things going on there. One is that he he somehow thinks that he won't be in danger. I feel like he's pretty convinced strangely since he made this being like 
you know, beyond hyper, you know, hyper strong and eight right. feet tall that he the one that's like, he if I wanted, conquer him. One's like, if I wanted to kill you, I could just do it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also, to me, it's also reflective of his just terror of connecting with Elizabeth that he wants to run away from her. Um, and I always connect that to like the death of the mother that um, he not only like never properly grieves her, but I assume blames Elizabeth for his mother's death since it was her sickness that, you know, mm -hmm. causes her to die. Um, that was sort of, sort of my, you know, and, and, and it does, you know, I'm not sure what we were saying about narcissism in 1818, but um, <laughs> it does fall, you know, that uh, running away from intimate relationship, I think does like follow the line of pathological narcissism. So that's how I sort of took it like that. He also uses it as a reason because he's always running away from her. Like, in, mm -hmm. the, you know, from the moment of this, this, um, this creepy incestuous proposal um, through <laughs> to the end of the book, he's just like, no, my work, this, but, but, you know, I'm going to like buddy up in my bromance with Henry. <laughs> it's like, that's no problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking, let, let's actually go back to your book um, a little bit more. So what was your favorite? What was the scene you sat down and started writing was like, oh, this is good. This is what's your favorite scene? Oh my God, that's such a good question. Um, I mean, I'm really, I'm, I'm really proud of the creation scene because I mm -hmm. feel like there's so much writing on it. There's so much pressure um, and I worked really hard on that. And then, so that would probably be my favorite like Frankensteinian scene. And then the other scene that I felt like, oh, this is gonna be really good is the, um, the wedding scene in the beginning, oh, right. the Indonesian wedding scene. Um, right just because I felt like it, ha it had this kind of like epic quality and it was so far removed from my life. And I was like, oh, I can actually write. I can actually make up shit. It sounds good. <laughs> right. um, and then the third thing is really the, the ending changed a lot. Um, it initially followed a little bit more of the Frankenstein ending and, and I could feel that it wasn't right. And, um, and I'm like, I'm really happy about, I'm not gonna say what happens, but there's a closed frame that I'm really proud of and that it that that the book does end in love is like you know I I feel you know good about it and um and I hope you know and also that it's not like life is hard enough so no. I want it I wanted it to end on uh, like <laughs> not a most not the most dire note like it is in the original for sure yeah without giving away the ending like I you know I feel like the you know frankenstein is a story about stories where it's like you know uh victor telling his story to robert and then the creature telling his story to victor and everything and i think you managed to do that and like even the the nesting doll goes so much deeper this time like down to where like you know you have the creature or you know um ash telling telling the story but then there's like pine telling ash about the letter that he got from, I think it's like Silver wrote, or Silver got a letter from Hannah that then Silver gave to Black and then Black gave to Pot. Like, there's just like so many layers of narrative. And again, that's like, it, you know, it feels like Frankenstein. We're, we're going to stitch all of these stories together to build one big narrative. 
Uh, and then, yeah, of course, the way that it all comes together so perfectly at the end is just great. Mm-hmm. And Well, and I think also that queer people are going to really see the queerness of that ending um, in terms of what it says about this relationship to um, bio family over chosen family. I mean, it's kind of funny to think about a creature in Frankenstein's bio family, but <laughs> it's true. <laughs> family of origin, sure. you know. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> And speaking of, you know, talking about the creation scene, um, I really liked that, you know, it could be argued that, like, Victor doesn't make a mistake. And, like, Victor creates a creature successfully or creates this new life successfully. Um, and then in it, it's circumstance or whatever, like, Victor doesn't make any mistakes. Uh, but in this case, you know, you have Z who knows something's wrong and still goes forward. And, like, I feel like having that extra layer of, like, culpability uh, adds a lot to to this story, where, where like, you know, Victor can be like, I didn't know it was going to happen that way, but but Z made the choice, you know? Yeah, it's really interesting, too, because there's, like, even though Z knows something... Well, Z knows it, was, it did not go as planned. Knows mm-hmm. this, withholds it from... From Hannah, who's like generous enough to like offer her, <laughs> offer her body for this right. experiment. Um, so yeah, so there are all these like levels of narcissistic irresponsibility. So that the um, because the other thing too is like I, the I think it's important that um, in the original Frankenstein that it's re- it's really not about the creature's hideousness. It's about his ego. It's about what's reflected for him and. Because otherwise, I think that you could, you know, in 2022, draw some really problematic sort of relationships there, um, relationship to to only accepting people who are beautiful or, you know, able-bodied or, you know, just like a number of things. And I think what's really important about Frankenstein, what makes it so powerful is like, it's not about that. It is about the fact that he can't, his ego is so weak and fragile that he is unable to accept the imperfections in himself that are sort of end up being reflected in what he sees and the creature that he's made Um, especially because he knows well and he he says it. he's like i knew he was gonna be ugly or whatever but i had no idea the hideousness is like so then what's your problem (laughs) yet you still did it and you still (laughs) run away (laughs) yeah have you ever seen the um the thomas edison silent film from from 1910 i think i have but it's been a long time um there's a moment at the end of that where like victor looks in the mirror like the the creature victor sees the creature in the mirror and then like the creature just vanishes and then victor is looking at himself in the mirror Mm. and like he's like pointing accusingly and everything which feels like what you're saying where like it's the creature is reflecting victor's the flaws in victor more so than the flaws in the creature Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think he's running from himself the whole, (laughs) and we're forced to (laughs) suffer through it. (laughs) Yep. You're not wrong. I mean, (laughs) well, uh, we don't want to keep you too long. It's looking like it's close to an hour. Um, All right. Is there anything else that that we didn't cover that you want to add? No, this was so much fun. Uh, It's such a good time to talk about this book with people who know Frankenstein inside and out and can geek out about it forever (laughs) like me. Um, 
I would just say, you know, please buy and read unwieldy creatures. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find everywhere, but um, you can find me, you know, most easily through Addie Brooke on Twitter or AddieTsai.com. And yeah, um, let me know what you think of the book. Thanks. Yeah, so much. yeah, we'll definitely we'll definitely link you, link your site and Twitter and everything in the show notes and everything. And uh, it, listeners, if it hasn't been obvious, like we highly, highly yeah, recommend 100%. that you, you get this book. Um, and also, yeah, you have another book, right? Dear Twin. Oh yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not Frankenstein based, but you know. <laughs> Still. Yeah, I, I haven't read that one, but no. I, based on this one, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to pick it up. Yeah, oh, thanks so much. Can we ask if you, is there anything else you're working on? You know, so there is um, another sort of Frankenstein-y thing that I want to, well, it's not really Frankenstein, but um, I have been toying with the idea of this, I guess you would call it historical fiction in which Mary Shelley and Ann Lister from Gentleman Jack have some sort of sordid love affair. (laughs) Because, okay, so for two reasons. One, um, if you haven't watched Gentleman Jack, it's on HBO, really recommend it. But it's based on um, this lesbian landowner um, in England in the 1800s. And she was pretty revolutionary for being a woman who, you know, ended up inheriting land and, um, was just a really fierce business person, but also she had all of these, you know, lesbian relationships that she wrote about in copious diaries in code so nobody could find out. And the the show Gentleman Jack is based on these real archive diaries that um, still exist in England. And I was just kind of curious. I was like watching the show and I like looked up, you know, Frankenstein and Ann Lister. She did read it on Halloween shortly after it was published. And also I found out that Mary Shelley used to help lesbians gain asylum. Oh. So I'm like, I just sort of feel like Mary Shelley could be queer. You know, I feel like it's not a stretch. (laughs) So that's something that I'm kind of, um, I haven't, I've only written like a sentence or two, but it's something I'm sort of toying with. Uh, I would still not make them white just because that's like, I'm not that into that. Um, so I'm, that's like the biggest problem that I'm trying to solve. Um, yeah. But I think it could be a lot of fun. And then I'm I'm working on um, a graphic novel in verse that deals with twins. And so we'll we'll see how we'll see how both those projects go. But I'll keep you posted for sure. Right, we'll be yeah. we'll be waiting. Yeah, we're definitely curious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on. It's been a blast talking to you. This is this was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was such a treat. And um, yeah, I can't wait to listen to it. It's going to be fun. Yeah. It'll be edited so all the times I stick my foot, foot in my mouth, well, that'll be gone. <laughs> I don't know why I studied. I don't know. <laughs> all right. Well, do we want to give the outro? Oh, yeah. You can, you know, you, of course, you can find us in all the, you know, Twitter, Instagram, at the Frankencast. You can email us, frankencast at gmail.com. And you can find us on patreon.com slash the Frankencast. Um, you know, so... Uh, I think that that covers it for this yep. week, though. Any interactions, good interaction, and all that good stuff. All right, so if that's it, to be continued. Uh... Looks like you survived another episode. The Freaking Cast is a production of FCR Media. It's hosted by Anthony Bowman and Eric Velasquez. Follow us on Twitter at The Freaking Cast or send us a letter at thefreakingcast at gmail.com. 
Our cover art is by Amanda Keller. You can find her at Keller Illustrations on Instagram. Our theme music is by Vivek Abhishek. Thanks for listening.